This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping engineers succeed in work and life. The show is hosted by engineering enthusiast Anthony Fasano and Chris Knutson. Both are professional engineers who found success early in their careers and now work together to help other engineers do the same. Now it's showtime. This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, a show for engineers who want to succeed in both work and life. I'm Anthony Fasano, your host. In today's episode, we're going to dig into a very interesting and important topic for all engineers, how to obtain your professional engineering license. I realize that many of you listening to this episode have the license, so you may be able to relate more with this than actually using some of these steps, but I'm going to be talking with Colonel Lagerquist, a career civil engineer officer who's completed two remote assignments and deployed four times in his career and also won an award, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But he basically went through the process of becoming a PE late in his career, about 20 years in, and he was getting a lot of questions from younger engineers. So he put together a phenomenal 10-step process to simplify the process for you of getting your license he posted about it on LinkedIn. I met him at the SAMI conference, Society of American Military Engineers, and we decided let's turn it into a podcast. And that's what we've done today. So we're going to jump right into it with Eric. But before we get into the main segment of the show, I do want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI, who of course knows a little bit about the PE exam process, of course. And we talk about them when we get into the steps with Eric, because he actually recommended them without even knowing that we had them as a sponsor. So that was pretty cool. So if you're thinking about taking the FEPE or SE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI, the leader in engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code COACH at ppitopass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com, and use the promo code COACH for a 20% discount. And towards the end of the episode, Eric talks a little bit about why he went with PPI and some of the other really cool benefits that they offer with their packages. All right, so now let me give you a quote related to today's episode to bring us into the show, which is leadership and learning are indispensable to each other. And that's from John F. Kennedy. Again, that's leadership and learning are indispensable to each other. What really impressed me about Eric was that he did this so late in his career, which makes it even more difficult in my opinion, but then he did get it done and now he's taking time to share all this information with other engineers. So he's definitely leading and he's definitely someone that learns on a regular basis based on what he's done. All right, let's get right into it. Now it's time for the main segment of our show and in today's main segment, I'm excited to talk with Lieutenant Colonel Eric J. Lagerquist. Eric is Chief Readiness Division Air National Guard Readiness Center, where he advocates for necessary resources to organize, train, and equip ANG combat and contingency engineering field units. He also provides guidance and policy to aid field units in managing their contingency and training programs, forecast, plan, and execute federal state contingency operations for ANG civil engineer forces, among other responsibilities. Eric was commissioned as a second lieutenant upon graduation from Norwich University in Northfield, Vermont in 1992 with a bachelor's degree in civil engineering. He held numerous assignments during his 20 plus years in the Air Force. 
Lieutenant Lagerquist is a career civil engineer officer. He has completed two remote assignments and deployed four times in his career, won the 2007 HQ AMC Spirit of Hope Award, and survived cancer. Originally from Bangor, Maine, he is married to his wife, Rachel, since March 2009, and they have two daughters, Courtney, born in September of 2010, and Hannah, born in September of 2014. I had the opportunity to meet Eric recently at the Society of American Military Engineers Jetsy Conference, and I'm excited to have him on the show. Eric, welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. Anthony, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here. All right. So, Eric, we're talking about a topic today that is, or at least I think should be of interest to most engineers, which is obtaining your professional engineering license. We're going to run through 10 steps that Eric has put together through his own experience, uh, which was which he wrote up in a, in a LinkedIn post that has been very popular. But Eric, before we dive into these steps in the process, why do you think it's so important as an engineer to go for your engineering license? Well, first off, Anthony, I think it uh, helps distinguish you as a professional. I know that's kind of redundant, but it also distinguishes you as being uh, serious about your profession. It's not widely encouraged while you're in the military, at least not in the Air Force. My brother, who happens to be in the Navy, and most Navy civil engineers will tell you, it is a requirement if you want to get promoted. That's not the same case in the Air Force. I can't speak for the Army or the other services. However, I remember seeing a stat one time, probably, I don't know, six months ago, ironically, right after I had received notification I had earned my professional engineer license, that said that less than 10% of all engineers in the U.S. were actually licensed. Wow. I can't validate that stat, but uh, it seems to be pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And talking about the different units of the military, and I think it translates also to civilians because I noticed that as a civil engineer, in the civil engineering world, I know a lot of engineers that are in construction or in certain divisions will often say, even like chemical engineers or whatever the case may be, will often say that they don't need to get it because they don't really need to use their license. And I tend to disagree with that. There was a guy in my graduating civil engineering class who did go into construction and he opted not to get his PE because he said, you know, I'm just going to be design engineers. I'm working for the contractor. But then sure enough, five to 10 years after we graduated, there was a recession. He lost his job and it was really difficult for him to try to get a job with an engineering company because he had never pursued his license. So I think that regardless of what discipline you're in, you should really consider getting your license for the reasons that Eric stated, just because, you know, it's a credential, it's an important credential. Who knows what you're going to be doing in your career and when you're going to be doing it. When you retire, you may even want to do consulting and you may not even use your PE while you're younger, but you may end up using it when you're more experienced. But it's important to get it early on because that's when everything is fresh in your mind. So we're going to walk through these 10 steps that Eric's framed out for you to hopefully make this process a little bit easier for you. We'll jump right in with step number one, Eric, which is make up your mind. Talk to us about that. Well, it's like I've often heard that uh, eating an elephant is very difficult unless you take it bite by bite. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I procrastinated so long on actually doing this. I didn't really understand the whole process. It just seemed like a lot of paperwork. And a lot of people I've talked to both before, during, and, and, and since, it says the hardest part is actually getting approved by a state board. So the very first step that, in my opinion, based on my experiences, is you got to make up your mind. Once you set up your mind that you're going to do this, everything uh, pretty much falls into place. Yeah. 
the first and foremost step is to uh, to pass your uh, fundamentals of engineering. And I'm assuming most people that are reading this or interested in this have at least done that. I took the EIT exam, which was the precursor to the fundamentals of engineering exam. It's the same basic test, but I took it way back in, in 1991. It was a requirement to graduate from college to take the test. Surprisingly, I passed. That's great. And didn't give it much thought after that. Went off into the Air Force, did a bunch of things, thought about PE a few times, but traveling all over the world, different deployments, moving every two or three years, it just never really was a priority. So I finally decided that, you know, heck, my brother's a PE, I'm getting close to retirement, it's time, made up my mind, and just started to take it a small bite at a time. Hmm. That's great. So step zero essentially is to take your EIT and then step one is to kind of, like Eric said, make up your mind on that you really want to pursue this PE and get into it. And I think that what's important about these steps, both of these items, is one, it's very, they can be influenced by your surroundings and the situations you're in. Like Eric was saying, in his case, in his college graduation was a requirement to take the FE exam. Unfortunately, not all schools are like that, which means that you need to be smart enough to say, I've got to take this exam now because this is the FE exam is an exam that's very, very heavy into your schoolwork and equations and different subjects. So you do not want to get far out of school before taking that. So that's definitely an important one. And my school was really good about that too. They bust us the exam and they were really, really adamant about it. So then this step one, now make up your mind. I agree exactly what Eric's saying is like, you've got to commit to this mentally because it's a process. We're going to lay out some steps here that'll make the process a little bit more simple for you, but it's not easy. I mean, you've got to study. There's work to be done. So you've got to commit to it. You've got to understand how much it's going to help you in your career, and then you've got to aggressively attack it just like any other goal that you would have. So I think that that's a great way to kick things off. All right, so step number two now, Eric, once you made up your mind, is to decide in which state to apply. Talk about that one. Anthony, that's a great, uh, great segue. I took the EIT in New Hampshire. School was in Vermont. I took it in New Hampshire. Basically, it cost less. And the Air Force wasn't going to reimburse me if I didn't pass the test. So because I've moved around, lived in a bunch of different states, didn't know where I was going to end up post you know, Air Force, I chose the District of Columbia. That's where I'm currently living. It seemed convenient. You know, test locally. During the process, I discovered that you could actually take the test in one state but get licensed in another and that's called the military option. Most state boards will offer that for people that are in the military. For example, say you are a Texas resident and you know you're going to move back to Texas someday, or you're currently in a state that you're going to retire to, or you're in a state that you're not going to retire to, but you want to register in your home state. doesn't matter. You need to decide which state. Now, here's the key part. You should probably shop around. Some states, the renewal is a lot easier. Some states, the application is easier. Some states have additional requirements. For example, state of California, there's a seismic portion of the test due to all the earthquake-related construction and whatnot that goes on out there. Some states will waive your fundamentals of engineering exam if you have sufficient extra engineering work documented. We'll get into that in a little bit later. So you just need to contact your state board, do some research online, look up the national Council for Examination of Engineers and Surveyors. They're the ones that uh, sponsor the test and, and do all the credentialing and figure out which state that you want to apply in. 
I agree with Eric. This is a big one because there are some states that are a lot, quote unquote, easier maybe to get your application through or they could be less expensive. And Eric referenced the military option. You can also do a reciprocity option even for civilians from state to state. Again, it depends on the state. Like in some states, you can just fill out a form and get reciprocity. In other states, you got to submit the whole application. It might give you a short 10-question quiz to test on some of their state laws, etc. But definitely do your research and check all the surrounding states. That's a big consideration. Anthony, if I could add just one more thing. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. For example, I know that we're moving to Texas soon. And I looked up the uh, requirements for the state of Texas. Whereas in D.C., they don't require any professional development hours every year to renew. The state of Texas requires, I believe, 18. I can't remember the exact number. But they also have an ethics exam. Now, it's an open book exam, but it's, it's pretty detailed. I've already looked into it. And I'm going to get to it in the next stop with the, the NCES. But uh, once their system comes back online, I should be able to do the process to transfer my licensure to the state of Texas. Because a lot of jobs down there, they require a Texas PE, not just a, any PE. PE certainly gets you in the door, but some employers in, in some states, they specifically want you to have licensure in that particular state because of the things you just mentioned. There's different rules, different construction codes, different ethics rules, you know, all those kind of different things. Yeah, that's a good point. In part of your step two here, when you're deciding which state to apply in, yeah, look at and consider your employer or future employers and how that might be affected. Exactly. All right, Eric, what's step three here? Let's jump into that. Well, step three, you need to register with the National Council for Examination of Engineers and Surveyors. Now, I knew I needed an NCES record, or at least needed an account to sit for the exam. That's actually, it's a website. You can go look it up on Google. And you basically put in some basic information, and you can purchase practice exams, practice problems. And that's how you actually register for the exam. You can do that first. You don't have to worry about going through a state board and getting approved and everything. And by doing so, that kind of sets your timeline. The actual PE exam is only offered twice a year. It's offered in April and October every year. And there are certain deadlines, and we'll get into that in a little bit. That's half of the process to register for your PE is to actually register through NCES. By doing that, you get an account number and all that kind of stuff. And when we get into the next step, that's going to come into play when it comes to getting your PE record or your NCES record. And that's the, the process that allows you to more easily transfer your licensure from state to state or to become registered in multiple states. Right. I've heard good things about the getting the record. I heard it's there's some work behind it, but once you have it, it's much easier to get the reciprocity in, in under the different states. It is. And I spoke to a couple of the representatives from NCES at the uh, Society of American Military Engineers conference out there in Arizona. Because I was concerned that I was going to have to do a redundant step, you know, ordering all my documentation and everything. And they said, no, no, no. It's a common misperception. You can register through NCES once you are licensed, i.e. once you pass your exam and, you know, state board grants you a PE license, then you can apply for your record. And what that means is you have to redo your work history documentation. You need to get your transcripts and all those kind of things. And what they do is they validate it and they basically become the central clearinghouse. So instead of having to do that every single time for every single step, you do it one time and you're set. It's like the common app for colleges where like you could apply to one, you could use one common application and you can submit it to several schools. It's kind of similar to that and it can really help you, especially if you work with a big or global company and you've got to be licensed in 10 or 15 states, then it's a definite, definite something you want to do. So Exactly, 100%. 
All right, Eric, step four. Step four, you need to request your college transcripts. Now, for some people, that's very easy. They went to one or two colleges. You know, they got a bachelor's degree and or a master's degree, or they just have a bachelor's degree. Some people have four, five, six, or more schools, depending on how many summer classes they took and all that. Basically, as I read the application, they wanted all my transcripts. For me, that was three. Not a problem, but that's three different colleges, three different processes, three different fees because they have to have an official transcript. It can't be just simply a photocopy or a, you know, Adobe PDF or something. So do a little Google search, made a few phone calls, and within about an hour, I had all three transcripts on its way to the DC board. But that's, a, that's a definitely a, a big step. And I think, although I haven't verified this, but I think if you have your NCES record at the same time, or at least you're applying for your record, what you can do is when you request a transcript, you can have it sent to the state board and to the NCES. Yeah, that's a good point. That is something that sometimes will just require, you know, you just got to roll up your sleeves and get in touch with these schools and get it done. But one thing I'll add before we jump to step five is something that Eric, again, touched on in, in number four is, you know, there's a fee involved maybe with getting your transcripts. I think one of the things you should do when you're in the early stages, maybe in like the make up your mind type of stage is price out what this whole process is going to cost you. I mean, hopefully you may be working for a firm that will reimburse you for some of the costs or potentially all the costs, depending on whatever they might be. But especially if you're younger and you're strapped for money, you're going to want to have an idea of what all these costs are going to add up to between the fees, the application fees, the transcript fees, books that you might need, courses, which we'll get into a little bit later. Just keep in mind that it's not necessarily a cheap process for a younger engineer that's kind of fresh out of school, just kicking things off. So let's keep moving. Go to step five now, your verification, right, Effie? Yes, correct. That's very similar to step four. Basically, you need to either fill out a form or a letter to your state board where you took your FE exam, or in my case, your EIT. I actually found the website. I actually found my certificate. So I had my actual number, thank God. But um, I called the state of New Hampshire, and sure enough, they were able to look me up in their system and said, yep, you got it right here. We just need this form filled out and a small fee, and we'll send it to wherever, whatever state you're pursuing licensure. Yeah. So it was actually a fairly easy step, but if you wait 22 plus years yeah. between the two, it's, you know, it can be a little dusty looking up those old records. But if you're a lot younger, it's fairly easy. Great. Next step, number six, obtain references. Yes, this is a, this is a very lengthy step. Most states, I found, require at least five references. Some states require them to all be professional engineers. Some require that at least three out of the five. In the example of District Columbia, they wanted five references from me. At least three of them had to be professional engineers. Fortunately, I knew quite a few professional engineers who were willing to basically be a reference for me. And a quick side note, most states, in fact, I think all states, specifically exclude family members. So I couldn't use my brother as a reference. Hmm. I'm pretty sure he would have given me a good reference, but yeah. I can't use him because that's a requirement. But make sure you've got good contact information. You're going to need mailing address, phone number, probably an email. And you're also going to need their, their state of licensure and their license number for your application. And I found out subsequently that by looking up state of Texas and whatnot, that the basic process is, is they're going to need to see your work history. They're going to need to be familiar with your work history. Now, in the military, that's difficult because you don't necessarily always work for a professional engineer. It's just the nature of what we do. However, 
a couple of my references are peers of mine that we worked together and have since gone on and gotten licensed in various states. And they were more than willing to vouch for what I did for that type of work. I actually had one of my former lieutenants was one of my references, and he gladly said, sure, no problem. He said, I wasn't really your supervisor. I was like, doesn't matter. You, you're familiar with the type of work I did. So get the references. You're going to need to complete your work history, which we'll get to here in a couple of steps. And they're going to ne basically need to validate that, yes, you did that kind of work and you are worthy of licensure. I think this is a huge step that Eric references here because they put a lot of weight in these references, most of these states. And what I've seen as the challenge for a lot of engineers is this is the step where they get stuck for exactly the reason that Eric talked about. You might say like, I didn't work under a PE. I work for a construction company and the PEs were on the design side on the design firm. But I've checked with some states too. And similar to what Eric has mentioned is you can get somebody else to give you a reference as long as they can vouch for your work. Like for example, if I happen to be on the construction side of a project in the engineering design firm, you know, I'm working with the PE who's done design. I can get a reference from that PE for my work on that project, even though we're not working in the same company. And this is something that I've asked. I mean, I've only asked a couple of states about it, so you'd have to kind of check with your state. But for the most part, they're looking for people that can kind of vouch for your work, that can give you a reference. It doesn't necessarily, obviously best case is if it's someone that's work, you're working under in the same company, but it doesn't have to be that person. So I would try to urge you not to give up if you feel like you don't have a PE that you're working for directly because you can get creative and find people that can still help you and vouch for you. And I think that that's important. Yes. And another thing too, make sure you double check with your particular state. For example, the state of Texas, they require the actual work history, whatever, how many pages that turns out to be, four, six, 12. Each page has to be signed by the applicant yourself and your reference. Meaning if you've got five references and you've got a 10-page work history, that's 50 signatures. Mm, wow. 10 per reference. And then you have to physically mail those out. For me, this, which was a very good plus because I was currently deployed overseas when I was doing this, I was able to email a PDF of my work history and the form kind of pre-filled out and ask that, you know, under the circumstances, would they be willing to basically just fill it out and put an envelope and mail it? I would have liked to have mailed them a self-addressed, pre-stamped envelope and all that kind of stuff, but time zones and distances being what it was, email was a wonderful thing. And fortunately, all of them agreed. Let's move on to the next step here, step number seven, which is seek advice from peers. Cannot stress this step enough. You can go out there and be the lone wolf if you want, but trust me, getting advice from everybody else is going to be a huge help. And I must have talked to probably a dozen of my peers who were PEs and quite a few others that weren't. And it all kind of boiled down to the same thing, practice. You need to practice, practice, practice. A lot of them gave me different insight about their particular experience on taking the test, some test-taking tips and whatnot, different things, and everybody's different in that respect. But it boiled down to just practice exams, practice test questions, practice problems, and put the work in. I remember reading somewhere, uh, I think the author Malcolm Gladwell in one of his books talks about, you know, to be an expert, you need to be like about 10,000 hours. That's, right. that's a lot of time. Yeah. We don't always have 10,000 hours to devote to, you know, this. But if you consider the fact that you've done four years of college, you've probably already done your FE and you've at least done four years of work, you've got quite a few hours behind you. And the particular review class that I took, 
they recommended about 250 to 350 hours of review time prior to the exam. So that's a lot less than 10,000, <laughs> but practice. Practice is the, is the key. And talking to peers too, they give you some great insight as to what it takes to continue to maintain registration. Various states, they might you might have a friend in one state and another friend in a different state and might realize that it's easier to go over to this state because it costs less or the number of PDHs required to renew is less or whatnot. So seek advice from your peers, whether they're registered or not. Find your friends, contact them, ask for help. I'll give you a little bit of what I took out of advice from peers. One was with the application, the one state I took the actual exam in, they want to see the descriptions written kind of a certain way that's not really implied per se on the application. So a couple of people that I worked with told me like, hey, listen, I got approved. I'll let you look at my application. You can look at how I wrote up some of my descriptions to get an idea of the format. And that was extremely helpful for me. I think that was one of the reasons that I was able to get my application through really at a young age when I just barely had the minimum experience. So that was a big one for me. And another big piece of advice that I got from peers was to try to not just buy the books for the sample questions from the company that administers the test. Try buying them from other sources too as well and getting questions from other sources. So I got a lot of different books and a lot of different things that I think was also helpful. But I think this applies in general to your career. I mean, whenever you want to achieve a certain goal, it's always helpful to talk to people that have achieved that goal already. It just makes sense. It can cut time out for you and it makes the whole process a bit easier. So definitely apply that same thinking to this PE process and get as much advice as you can from people that took it successfully and passed it. Yes, exactly, Anthony. And that's one of the main reasons why I wrote this uh, post for LinkedIn and we're now doing this podcast is to help others because people were starting to ask me, okay, what are you doing? And, and once I passed, I had a lot of people come out of the woodwork and say, great, you know, I want to do the same thing. What made it easy for you? So I had kind of a to-do list that I lined up and all the various steps and everything. And I sanitized that down, took all my personal information off of it and was starting to hand that out to folks. I was also taking my work history, sanitizing that a little bit and sending that out because that's exactly what I had. I had a couple people send me their work history so I could get the specific language and format. So I was able to uh, help focus the board on my actual engineering experience. All right. Step number eight, document work history. Yes. Documenting your work history. You're going to get a form to fill out for your application and it's not going to be big enough. You're, you're basically going to have to do a separate document. And in my case, I think it was about 12 pages. This step was both the easiest and the hardest. Easiest because I was able to focus down on like seven some years of engineering experience. I had more than enough, but I also had 22 plus years of work history. And one of my peers gave me a very good point. He said, at the top, put a very basic summary, break it up into your 14 different work engagements and tell the board which three or four to focus on. So that helped make it a little easier. I put in some stuff that I did. For example, I was a professor of aerospace studies, an ROTC commander. Okay, college level teaching. Eh, you wouldn't think that's experience, but the board considers that, you know, professor type experience. It's not really engineering experience per se, but it is part of my work history. I was, you know, a flight commander for an engineering flight over in Korea that wasn't necessarily related to engineering or construction. Still put it on my work history because it basically covered everything from college to now and showed that I had the requisite experience as an engineer. 
Yeah, this is a big part of it, documenting everything. And one thing I would add to it is I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you don't have your PE, you're prepping for the process. Maybe you're listening to this a few years before you're going to take your PE. And if that's the case, you need to document your work history from day one in your career. Create a document, a Word document, an Evernote, whatever you use, and document the work history so that three, four years down the road, which most of these states require three, four years of experience after the FE, you don't have to go searching for what projects you worked on, what your responsibilities were, who your supervisor was on that project. You may have relocated like Eric did. So definitely you're going to have to document your work history on the application for sure, like Eric mentioned, but you also need to start doing it earlier so that you can successfully document when you get to that point. And you could lose like a year by having to dig back and try to find all the information and find all your past supervisors. So this is a step that should really start years before you actually do this application. Yes, exactly, Anthony. Fortunately for me, I had a lot of performance reports and I could basically go back, copy and paste because one of the things that I was advised to do and was recommended by the board is to make sure you document scope, scope of work, i.e. what type of projects were you responsible for, terms of dollar value, square footage, you name it. The more numbers and whatnot that you can quantify in your work history helps show that you have the breadth and depth of knowledge. Yeah, definitely. And again, it was good that Eric had those reports. You may not have them, so just please document as much as you can as you go through your career. Anthony, one more, one more comment. As it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway because, frankly, it's all part of being a professional engineer is having integrity. You definitely do not want to overinflate your work history. In other words, don't pad your work history like you might pad a resume. I'm not saying people do that. I'm just saying you want to be able to back up everything that's on there. Because in case the board does actually contact you and say, hey, can you tell us more about this, you can be ready to explain it and be honest. Step number nine, I said, was uh, complete and mail your application. And completing the application is more than just filling out the form and signing it. In my particular case, I needed to have it notarized. Well, fortunately, I had it notarized. And, and also, you might need a passport photo. You might think, why do I need a passport photo? Well, in this particular case, the people that are collecting the application are not the same people that are administering the exam. It's just another way to verify who you are. So they have a passport photo with the application so that when you check in, they can look at your photo ID, they look at you, they look at your application. Yes, you are the person you say you are. It avoids people doing fraudulent things like having someone else take the exam for them. But complete your application, get all the T's crossed, all the I's dotted, make a copy of your application just in case it gets lost, have it notarized. In my particular case, I was able to get it done here on base before I deployed and was able to get it in the mail. And then uh, you're probably going to need a photocopy of your driver's license and or your military ID. It, it's a very involved step. You think it's, oh, I'm just going to mail the application. Well, it's pretty involved, but definitely make sure you make a copy. And then if you want, you can send it registered or certified. In my case, I think I just sent it, you know, delivery receipt, got the delivery receipt. I followed up a few weeks later. They said, yep, we've got everything we need. There was one particular form that I didn't fill out properly. I was able to fix that via email and everything was good to go. And also when I'm in this particular step, make sure you're paying attention to the dates. And as I mentioned before, the PE exam is offered twice a year, but you have to back up almost six months 
for a lot of these uh, boards to have all the stuff in because they may not get together every month. They may get together once a quarter. And if you want to take the test in October, you might have to mail everything in by May or even June. So plan ahead, do everything that's required for the uh, application, make a copy, and get it in the mail. Eric's right. It's not as simple necessarily as printing it off and sending it out. So definitely pay attention to the detail on that one. All right. Now, Eric, you have one here that's, we'll call it 9B, let's say, and it's listed as kind of an optional step, which is register for the PE review course, which I think is a critical, critical thing. We have PPI as our sponsor for this podcast, and I used their CEO, Michael Lindenberg's books. But talk about this a little bit. Yeah, I made it an optional step in my uh, my post because I didn't want to really advocate for one particular review course over another. There's three or four of them out there. I chose PPI because that seems to be the industry standard when it comes to the, the books. You know, Dr. Lindbergh there with his uh, Civil Engineer Review Manual. I priced out all the books on Amazon and all the books necessary just for the review class. And that's the review book, the practice exam, the depth review book for whatever afternoon depth module you decide to take, everything all included was going to be just shy of $1,000. I thought, wow, that's a lot of money. PPI, they offer a review class. It's all online, access to online questions, a daily forum, the whole nine yards. And it was about $2,000, give or take. And not that I'm advocating for one over the other, but they include all the books and a calculator that's NCES approved. And that's a key thing too. You need to make sure you have a calculator that is approved by your board, basically one that's not programmable or doesn't have a big memory or whatnot because they don't want you bringing in a bunch of information that you're not supposed to have. So, yes, the exam is open book, but there are certain calculators that are, that are allowed in the exam. So the key thing for the review class, being that I was 22-plus years from college, it helped me focus. I think that's the best part about having a review class is the, the structure. And they focused on the key big rocks of the exam. I can't remember how many pages the term is off the top of my head because I don't have the book here in front of me, but it's a really thick book and there's a lot, a lot of chapters, but they focus on the big stuff, the water stuff, the soils and geotechnical, some of the transportation stuff. And going through that and actually having someone walk you through the program and walking you through the problems really helped me get back in that mindset of thinking like an engineer knowing where to look stuff up, and basically kept me on schedule. I would agree with Eric 100%. The reason that I always recommend people do this is literally because what Eric said, it keeps you on target because you know we get pulled a lot of different ways in our careers and our lives, and, and sometimes these exams and these credentialing processes can suffer when that happens. But if you have a course that you're in, people that can hold you accountable – then it's going to keep you on track and you at least know you're going to get exposure to these topics on a weekly basis, even if you get busy at work. So definitely invest in it. Chris and I, we recommend the PPI. They sponsor us. And the reason that we took them on as a sponsor is because we both use them for our PE processes. And we also both had the ability to sample their online course before we took them on as a sponsor. And it's really functional. It's really easy to use. And echoing some of Eric's sentiments, we just thought it was a real good process. And what you'll hear like at the end of this podcast is, and, and this is something that Eric didn't even know about, he recommended this on his own, but they also offer a, a discount code for our listeners to the podcast. So if that can help you get even more of a discount, we're happy for that. Right. Yeah, a couple more things. Uh, they have a, a 10% early discount. If you register by a certain date, you get a 10% discount. 
And uh, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but they have a passing guarantee, meaning if you take their course and you meet all their requirements, i.e. attend all the lectures, and the lectures are recorded, which is important because I signed up for this class. I had to delay it a few months because of my deployment. And when I went on deployment, I would have been getting online about 3 o'clock in the morning. I did that once. It made for a very long day. But they record all their things. They're posted within 24 hours. And you can watch it, admittedly, on tape delay. So you can't necessarily interact as well with the professor or the other students. But there is a forum, so you can post questions. And that's what I did. But if you watch 80% of the, the videos and you do 80% of the homework as a minimum, they guarantee you will pass. And if you don't pass, you can take the entire course again for free. So that was kind of a key selling point. And that's just one thing I wanted to add. The second thing I wanted to add is your employer, as we alluded to earlier, depending on who you work for. I know the Air Force doesn't currently reimburse the cost of the review class and the books and taking the exam, which can creep upwards of like $3,000 when you're all said and done. But some employers will reimburse you. And it's worth noting that uh, if you're really serious about this and you've followed step one and made up your mind, you might want to look into that as well. And I think the thing about the guarantee with PPI, for me, what I think is, is, is value on that is the accountability factor. So if you're trying to get that guarantee, it's going to really force you to go through 80% of the materials. And I think having any kind of accountability is always a really positive thing. And also the, the having your company reimburse you is a big deal because obviously that could save you money. I know the company that I worked for, they reimbursed us for the exam. They allowed us to purchase a book or a review course. They were very generous with it. Every company is different, but make sure you find out what your company will reimburse you for and take advantage of it because it's a big, big help. Exactly. All right, so what we're going to do now is we're going to transition into our Take Action Today segment of the show where we usually wrap things up. And in this case, we're going to go through step 10 in that final segment because I think it's going to be a good way for us to wrap all these items up and just run through a quick summary of these points. So stick with us. All right, now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show where we try to give you an actionable piece of advice or summarize all the information that we provided in the episode. And in this segment, we're going to hit step number 10. We're going through these 10 steps that Eric's laid out to make the PE exam process a little bit easier for you. But before we do that, I would like to offer a word from today's episode sponsor, PPI. Engineers often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use when preparing for the FEP or SE exam. Hands down, I recommend PPI. I personally use PPI's materials to pass my exams, and I recently had a chance to demo their review courses. It's why I feel confident recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code COACH at PPI2Pass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com, and use promo code COACH for a 20% discount. And we really do thank PPI because they allow us to keep the show free for all of our listeners, and also, in this case, giving a benefit to our listeners, which is great. All right. So with that, let's jump in and let's finish up these 10 steps that Eric's been generous sharing with us. The 10th step is to prepare for and take the exam. Let's jump into this one, Eric. Right. As I've mentioned before, the PE exams are offered twice a year, every April and October. Plan accordingly. Allow time to both compile and complete your application and time to review all the pertinent material, whether you're going to do electrical, 
construction, geotechnical, what have you. Make sure you have your knowledge refreshed of basic engineering concepts. The PPI course is a great way to do that. And most importantly, make a schedule. You know, carve out study time. You know, I alluded to you're going to need 250, 300 hours. Well, if you break that down into like an hour or two a night, I get it. Some people have families. Some people are, you know, single, don't have a kind of thing. They can carve out a lot of time. My particular case, I got deployed. So I had a lot of extra free time because I wasn't home with my wife and daughters. So my wife said, make sure you make the time count, which I did. And uh, practice problems. Practice, practice, practice. Once you get notified that you're approved to sit and you got registered for the exam, make sure you know where the facility is. I actually recommend you pre-drive it. There's a whole bunch of recommendations in the book with the PPI class, but basically know exactly where you're going on the day of the exam, get there early, park, have all your stuff organized, tab your books if you want, and last but not least, relax, have fun, and uh, good luck. If I can do it, I know the rest of you can do it. Yeah, thank you, Eric. And just to touch on one point really specifically that Eric touched on is the scheduling of your study time. Because like Eric said, you know, he had some extra time on his hands. He was deployed. But if you're in a situation where, you know, maybe you do have family, maybe you have a job where you're working 50 hours a week, you're commuting an hour, whatever the case may be, think about the best schedule for you. If you're commuting, maybe it's your train rides. For me, I was a young engineer. We had just had a baby, my wife and I. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way I'm going to have any time to study for this exam, but I knew how important it was. So I actually ended up getting up early every morning and doing about an hour each day before I went to work. And I did some at lunchtime at work. And that time together was a huge help for me. And the bottom line was, is that if you understand how important this credential is to your career and you go back to step one, which was make up your mind that you're going to do it, then that should give you the fuel and kind of the fire to push through and do some of these things that don't sound great, like getting up early and doing stuff like that. So it's a huge, huge, huge credential in your career as an engineer. You have to do whatever you can to try to get this. And just to recap here, let's just run through the steps real quickly. So step one was to make up your mind and commit to it. Step two was to decide in which state you want to apply and do your research. Step three was to register with NCEES. Step four was to request your college transcripts, which you'll need official transcripts. Step five was to verify your FE or EIT credential, reaching back out to the state where you took it. Step number six was to obtain your references. And remember, they don't necessarily have to be for someone you worked for directly. It could be another PE. Step number seven, seek advice from your peers. Step number eight, document your work history. Step number nine, Complete and mail your application across your eyes, dot your T's. Eric listed some some tricky things you just got to be aware of. And then 9B, we gave you as the optional step, which was register for a PE review course, which we both highly recommend. And then step number 10 was to prep for and take your exam using some of the, the little tips here. So Eric, thank you for your service. Thank you for your time here, making all this information available. We will link to your uh, LinkedIn profile so that everybody can maybe connect with you and check out your article that you posted on LinkedIn as well, if that's all right with you. That's perfectly fine with me. All right, great. You'll be able to find a summary of this entire episode at engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash PE prep. That's all lowercase P E P R E P where you can get a summary of these 10 steps that we'll get. And we will link to Eric's LinkedIn profile and some of the other resources that we talked about in this episode 
I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, or questions. So please remember to go to that show notes post at engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash PE prep and leave any comments or questions that you have. I will monitor the comments. I will make them available to Eric so we can both respond. And until next time, please continue to engineer your own success. Thank you for listening to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. Be sure to visit engineeringcareercoach.com where you can find all past episodes and also download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also to help develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.